Hi, I am not Richard. Are we clear? <laughs> really? Yeah. Yes. Uh, so if you're looking for him because the bulletin says Pastor Richard's going to be here, I'm Brad. Uh, I, I am over at the Ballard campus. We meet at the Ballard homestead. Hey, nice to see you. There's Danny. I know Dan and Jen. Hey, I know a couple of you. I can't see that far. Oh, yeah. Dustin, Denise. All right. So we got like a couple friends. Uh, but anyways, I'm usually over there at the Ballard campus. So tonight I'm with you. So lucky you. And I want to do a, an experiment. Okay. We're talking about the Bible, right? If you didn't know that, we're going to talk about the Bible. See if you could follow me with this song. I want to see how old I am. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I, you sat. The B-I-B-L-E. That's where you shout Bible. Okay, I'm not, I'm not as out of touch and old as I thought I would be. Okay, 38, almost 40. All right, pray with me, and then I won't have you sing again. Thank you for singing the B-I-B-L-E song, those of you who did. Okay, Father, we thank you uh, for nights like this. We thank you that uh, for, for your scriptures, that you could speak to us through those, uh, those pages. And Lord, as we look and see how we may be able to grow uh, in you and faith in you and more and more like you, Christ, um, through scriptures and through our, our reading it and then through journey. We thank you for tonight. May you open our ears. May you soften our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Another test. See how old you are. Any of you remember the whole ad campaign, I want to be like Mike? Yes, thank you, Dawn. We want to be like Mike. Do you know who Mike was? Michael Jordan. Okay, growing up, there was this whole thing. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. And it was this commercial with everybody trying to be like Michael Jordan, which was awesome. So I tried to be like Michael Jordan, and it was terrible. I tried to, I, we couldn't afford his shoes, so we did everything but the shoes. We had, I had the, the number 23, uh, I'm bald now, I wish I was bald then, it would have been better, uh, but I tried to play basketball, I tried to play like Mike, and I would lower my adjustable rim so I can dunk. Uh, this doesn't get off the ground very much. And so I would lower the rim so I can dunk and be like Mike. And when I would do so, I would stick my tongue out until someone told me this, that if I were to fall and bang my jaw, I would probably chop off my tongue. And then I, 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 would, I would be able to speak. And I was like, that's not good. So we're going to put our tongue back in. Different story. Anyways, so the whole thing being like Mike was awesome. And then I got cut twice from my seventh grade basketball team. I know. Thank you. This morning, they just laughed. <laughs> and then, and then uh, I tried out again because you got to be like Mike, right? Uh, and Mike got cut from his, his basketball team, so I thought I would try. Again, in eighth grade, I got cut twice. Then I decided basketball's dumb. I'm never going to play it again, and I won't even watch it and don't. So anyways, that started there. But there was this frustration I had. I wanted to be like Mike, but every time I tried to be like Mike, I couldn't play like Mike. I couldn't shoot like Mike. I couldn't jump like Mike. I couldn't, I, I wasn't good at dribbling. I was terrible at layups, still am. But I, I couldn't be like Mike. And it wasn't that I wasn't, a, that it's just because I wasn't playing like Mike. But in order to be like Mike, I learned later, in order to be like anybody like that, you need to practice like Mike. 
And Mike had this practice, Mike, we could call him Jordan. He had this uh, practice thing that was intense and all the time he was practicing. And here's where the frustration came. I expected to play like Michael Jordan when I played basketball, which was like once a week. And that didn't work. Because in order to play basketball like Michael Jordan, you couldn't, it does, it's one thing to have all the gear. It's another thing to adopt his practice schedule. Then you could be like Mike. This has a lot to do with our new series. In just a second, it'll all make sense. We try, and the Christian's goal, those of you who follow Christ, Christ follower, Christian disciple, we strive to be like who? We're going to be talking back all night, guys. We, Jesus. Jesus is always the answer in church. <clears throat> it's not a squirrel. It is Jesus. Uh, so every time we try and be like Jesus, Jesus, that's who we want to be like. And so when we come to situations and we try and be like Jesus and fail, why? What happens? We get frustrated and we want to quit, like me in basketball. But why do we get frustrated and want to quit? Why do we fail? Because, and here's the answer, because we often do not practice the same things that Jesus practiced. We want to play like Jesus on the spot, but we only will live like Jesus on the spot, and we live like everybody else the rest of the time that we're alive. If you want to live like Jesus, if you want to have a sustainable faith like his, you need these practices that we're going to be talking about in the next few weeks in order to soften the soil of your heart for that seed to take root and for that life of Christ to, to swell up within you and grow and grow and grow. In order to be like Christ, we need to practice like Christ. So tonight, we're going to look at what Jesus thought about Scripture how scripture anchored him, how scripture anchored us, because the common theme for all of us when it comes to life, it becomes very easy to drift away into meaninglessness. It becomes very easy for your faith to drift away and be not faith anymore. It's super easy not to drift. What do you have to do in order to not drift or in order to drift? Absolutely nothing. The answer was over here. You'll wake up. We'll talk back over here. So far, they're winning. In order to drift, all you have to do is absolutely nothing. Carrie and I, my wife's name's Carrie, and before we had our little guy named Judah, who's going to be two, before we had him, uh, we used to have this habit of when it got real hot in the summertime, we would grab our rafts and we'd walk down to Green Lake and we'd swim out and cool off. I fall asleep anywhere and every time. And so I would fall asleep. I would wake myself up, almost fall off the raft. It was funny to carry. And, but this is, was, was our habit when it got hot because our house would get really warm. So we would go to the lake. And many of you are going, oh, gross. He swam in Green Lake. <laughs> I grew up in Southern California. I surfed a lot. You should see some of the waters I used to be in. Green Lake's like a mountain spring compared to the waters off Los Angeles. So there, and I have all my shots, so I'm good. And this was before <laughs> Judah. And so we would go out there, and, but then we noticed something. It was very, it, it, it happened a few times. We'd swim out and we'd be on this end of the lake, so that's, that's west. We'd be on the west end of the lake, and then we'd want to get out and we'd be all clear on the other side. And we'd be like, oh man, we got to get out and either walk barefoot on the, the track 
or swim back. And so we would swim back because who wants to walk? I don't walk a lot barefoot. And so we'd swim back. And so we would always catch ourselves drifting to the other side of the lake. It was very easy to drift. Drifting is very easy to do. And when you drift, you lose your focus and you lose your place and you lose your power. And so what happens was we would get out there and then we would finally, it dawned on me to anchor myself to the buoy that was out there. I had a rope. I would tie it to the buoy. I would tie it to uh, the raft, string it through my raft to her raft, and it would hold us in place and we would be anchored in place and we wouldn't get caught in the drift. Drifting happens and it's a, it's a danger to your faith. This is why Hebrews 2.1 speaks so loudly. You must be careful, therefore. You must be care, pay careful attention so that you do not drift away. The writer of Hebrews, she's writing to this group of people and she's telling them how to stay strong in, the face of the, in, the, in their faith, that they don't go backwards. And she says, stay strong in your faith. Don't drift away because if you look at the pattern of scripture, she's referencing something that happened back in Judges. Drifting takes place all through scripture and it's a warning to us too. Don't get caught in the drift. In Judges 2, here's where the drift happened the first time. Judges 2.10, it says this, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, which is a really poetic way of saying they died, after they been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So that generation that had been gathered to the ancestors, here's what they saw, and it was awesome. They see the Jordan River stopped, and they cross over to the Jordan River on dry land. They witnessed uh, Jericho. They walked around it. They screamed really loud, and the walls came tumbling down. They saw that with their own eyes. They moved in to the promised land. They took hold of the promised land. They saw battle after battle. They saw movement after movement of God moving. They saw God move in ways that make me so jealous. And then they got so wrapped up in building their homes, building their families. They got so wrapped up in doing the work of a nation that God had called them to be, which was good but they lost their focus on why they were there. They never, ever taught their people underneath them, their families, how to be anchored in their identity of who they are in Christ. And so this verse pops up in Judges. A whole generation came up who did not know the Lord God of Israel. In other words, these people were so busy defending and building and doing stuff for God that they neglected to teach the next generation how to know God. The most important thing that you can do with your life is to know God, to experience him, to taste and see that he is good, as the proverb says. But the next most important thing that you will do in your life is take your faith and pass it on to the next generation. That's why this children's ministry thing is such a good idea, because it takes the faith that you have and passes it on to the next generation. That's the next most important thing that you can do. 
Oftentimes we find ourselves busy with church activity. We go to church on Sunday. Some of you go to church Sunday morning and Sunday night. And then you have a PCEC group. And then you have a Bible study. And then you have another thing. And then you have another church thing. And then you have another church thing. And you get so busy doing the things of church that you never really stop and actually get to know this God you're so busy doing things for. You need to be anchored. You will drift if you're not anchored. The nation of Israel got so busy doing all of these things that they never really knew the God that had brought them there. And they began to drift. And like Carrie and I on Green Lake, we never really even realized it. You drift and you don't realize it until it's way too late. And so finally... In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, there's another thing that says here. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. When you're not anchored to something, when you don't have something that you can stake your life on, that you can stand on, you will be tossed to and fro by any popular thought that comes along your way. And so for us as Christ followers, we anchor ourselves in the person of Christ that is shown to us through these scriptures. This is the anchor for your life. This tells you how you are supposed to be you. These pages are God's revelation of who Christ is, what he did for you, and how you can serve him. Without an anchor, without a guide, you will become your own reference point. And you'll lose God's revelation, which will lose your reference point of who you're supposed to be. And you'll start to take on any kind of image that you can think of because you're not busy studying what God says about you. People will say all sorts of things of who you're supposed to be, what you're supposed to be, how you're supposed to be. And you'll just go along with it because you're not anchored in what God says you are in who God says you are, that you are loved before you even get out of bed in the morning, that you were loved wholly before you did anything to deserve that love. This is what the scripture tells us about you. And when we're anchored in that fact, we begin to know Christ and he begins to reveal himself to us and we stay anchored in him. All of this stuff in Israel comes to a head. They were God's chosen nation. They were chosen in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation so that everybody else will know who I am. God's talking to Abraham there. And then he says to Moses, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. Priests look like the, the God they serve. And so I'm going to make you a nation of priests so that when people see you, they'll think of me. And then it goes along and they start to drift. They lose, their, they lose their identity. They lose what they're supposed to do. They lose their anchor. And then in Samuel, it comes to a head in chapter 8. They say to, to the prophet then, Samuel, we want a king. Israel had been ruled by God from then for, for, to that point. They had judges to be kind of overseers, but they followed God. They come to Samuel and say, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. We don't necessarily want to be like God. We want a king. And Samuel spends like 14 verses going, you really don't. It's going to cost you. Uh, you're going to go to war. It's going to cost you money. They'll probably raise taxes. He just goes down the line of why you don't want a king. And then the people of Israel say back to Samuel, yeah, yeah, we don't care. 
Everybody else is doing this. We've drifted so far off track that we want a king to be just like everybody else. They got to the point where they lost their identity of who Christ made them to be. And it's important that we take note of what happened to them because it's very easy for that same thing to happen to us. We live in a world of a 24-hour news cycle, if you haven't noticed. Uh, my phone lights up probably three times a day with something that's been done. And it can be very discouraging at times, right? And then you get discouraged. And then what's the next step? You get cynical. And it's cynicism is the easiest thing you can do. Then you get discouraged even more. And then after you're cynical to some point, the next step past cynical is disengagement. If you are supposed to be a person of hope, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, as the fruits of the Spirit are, but you have become cynical and disengaged because your anchor point is not on the word of Christ, how are you going to live up to those things? In order to remain a person of hope in this world, in order to remain according to the calling of who you're supposed to be in Christ, we need to be anchored so we don't become disengaged and cynical so we keep our eyes on truly who our hope should be in our hope is in christ our hope is not in the oval office our hope is no matter who is there our hope is in christ and the more and more we drift away from that the more and more we drift away from who our hope actually is we begin to lose our voice of who the kingdom of god is supposed to be within us so we need to stay anchored to the work of Christ that is shown to us through scriptures. Are we tracking? Okay, good. I'm glad you're with me. Stay anchored in Christ because if we want to be changed to the image of Christ, all transformation happens. All the transformation that we desire uh, as followers of Christ is to be people of love, hope, peace, patience. And the result of that is a direct response to God's revelation to us. And the primary source of revelation is the Bible. Okay? We're here. Therefore, saturating your minds and your hearts and your lives with God's revelation is the most important thing that you can do with your time. And if God's primary revelation for us isn't nature, God's primary revelation for us isn't the 24-hour news cycle, God's primary revelation for us isn't a self-help book or more counseling sessions, and I'm married to a therapist, I can say this, God's primary revelation for you is through what he has shown you about Christ in Scripture. There is your anchor point on everything about who you are. It begins right there. So if the primary source of God's revelation to us is found in Scripture, it's there. That's where we find this antidote or this anchor to keep us from drifting. It is only when we read God's Word and put it into practice is where life is changed. Here's what we usually do. We'll open the Bible, we'll spend five minutes there, or maybe 20 or 30 or however long you have, and you shut it, and we don't do anything different with our lives. James talks about this. He says, oh, it's great, you read the Bible, wonderful. He, he says it sarcastically. Maybe I read it sarcastically because I'm a sarcastic person. But he goes, great, you read the Bible. Do what it says. You read the scriptures. 
Now put them into practice. It's one thing to know everything about this, but it's another thing entirely to put it, uh, put boots on the ground and begin living like what you know about your scriptures. Here's the story of Josiah in 2 Kings. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. How would you like it if the person in charge of you was eight years old? How many of you have eight-year-olds at home? Yeah. What if your eight-year-old was in charge? No. Okay. Josiah was eight when he became king. Uh, his mother, and, he, and he, his mother was named uh, Jedediah. He ruled uh, Jerusalem for 31 years. And here's something about Josiah that sticks out. It says in, in, in 2 Kings, he did what was right in, in the eyes of God. That statement is very, very rare when it comes to the kings of Israel. He did what was right. Here's why. One day, Josiah sent his secretary, whose name was Shaphan, and, and, and they sent him down to the temple just to pay the people who were in charge of the temple. Now, the temple at that point was corrupted and polluted with all sorts of false gods. They were worshiping Baal and Asherah there. It wasn't what the temple was supposed to be. Josiah sends someone down there and the, to, to pay the people running it, taking care of the place. And Shaphan finds in the temple an old book of the law. The law had been forgotten. The law, the Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, he finds those books buried in a corner in a dusty clay pot. He finds them there. Josiah, he brings them back to Josiah. He opens up the scroll and he says, Josiah, we found something. Josiah, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, says, all right, read them to me. And so he opens the book and begins to read the scriptures to Josiah. Josiah has a response. He tears his robe, which is a way of saying, I am completely undone. I am broken. I've come to my end. I need to change. Josiah heard scripture and then he changed. He heard the revelation of God. He realized that his whole nation that he was in charge of was completely off base. It had drifted away and he hears it and he says, we have gone so far. Josiah begins to take measures and he says, okay, we have drifted. We need to get back on track. We need to do this. And so he cleans out the temple of all of the false gods, all of the idols. And then it says this, God responds to him and says, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors. Nice way of saying when you die, you're going to be taken care of. And you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster that I will bring to this place. Josiah heard scripture, realized how far off base he was and his nation was, and he corrected back to where he should be. In Psalm 119, verse 9, it says this, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I will seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Josiah is an example to us of Psalm 119. When you hear God's word in your heart, you adjust back to what God's word said. This is the authority that we base our faith on. 
scriptures. Not what somebody else says about scriptures, but scriptures. I have this habit, and it's a bad one. I, I, I read what a lot of other people say about the Bible, and I don't really read the Bible. I like to see what these theologians have said, but I never really fact check what they said about scripture. And it's something that is a temptation. We want to read somebody else's devotionals rather than do our own. We want to podcast sermons from every person that we've ever heard of rather than sit in scriptures ourselves. And when we do that, our faith becomes somebody else's and not necessarily our own. Josiah, in the middle of the chaos of his kingdom, is an example to us of when you find, uh, when you find Scripture and you see that you have drifted, you go back to your source. You go back to your anchor. You go back to find a true north, which never shifts. Most of us are so busy following a magnetic north, which is always changing based on the atmospheric conditions. But true north never moves. Josiah goes back and finds true north, and it guides him back on the journey that God has, has him on. How do you know if you're off course? The way you know that you're off course is you're always aware of where north is. North doesn't drift. We do. What Josiah shows us is his heart was willing to be corrected. He had an open desire to follow God's directions. It was a daily check-in. All this boils down to this challenge, and it's kind of obvious. Read your Bible. It's easy. You want to get back in anchored? Read your Bible. Now, here's some things, some practical uh, adjustments that might help you read your Bible. Uh, we'll start with the story. There was an experiment that was done. It was done uh, here in America, and it was done over in Ireland. There were two floors on a sky rise, and they went to the first floor and said, hey, Merry Christmas, Happy Birthday. Uh, there is a gym downstairs, and you all have a free one-year membership. Plus, you have an athletic trainer that is there for you anytime you want, and a nutritionist. Anything that you want to do to get in shape is right down there, free for a year. Wow, that's pretty great, right? How much do we spend a month on men gym memberships? That one's free. Then they went to another floor, same building, and said, here's a challenge for you. One time a day, climb one flight of stairs, and then one step of the next flight. And then the next day, one flight of stairs, two steps of the next flight. The next day, three steps of the next flight, four steps. They came back a year later. Who was in better shape? The steps. It's not, I'm not telling you to go to climb stairs. There's a principle here. Oftentimes we look at the Bible and go, I'm supposed to read all of this? What? <laughs> Start small. Start with one step. The people who took the one step uh, each day had lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, had lost more weight. They were in better shape than the people who had everything catered for them. You should read your Bibles. You should spend time in the Word. But here's how it starts. Five minutes. I dare you to read five minutes a day in your Bible. Five minutes. It's that. You could do it on a commercial break when you're watching The Bachelor. Five minutes. <laughs> or whatever show is on right now. Five minutes. Then, the next day, 
five minutes plus one, which is six. You're right. Then the next day, five minutes plus another two minutes, seven minutes. Our brains are easily tricked, right? Pretty soon, five minutes won't seem like five minutes. Pretty soon, you will not be overwhelmed by opening your scriptures and spending 20 minutes in because it'll seem like five because you've taken small steps. Small steps. That's how we begin reading our scriptures. That's how we become anchored. Small steps in the scriptures. Start small. Take the first step. The secret is not found in huge, giant steps. The secret is found in the small ones. Next tip. Start with a book. Pick a book, any book. Start there. Read it. Five minutes. Don't agonize over should I start in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Go online. Google where you should start reading your Bible. Just pick a book. Read John. But read John. Don't leapfrog around. Don't flip and wait for inspiration. Simply saturate yourself in the Word of God and then let the revelation happen because it's taking those small steps where you begin to realize that once you take those steps, the next step becomes easier and that's where the journey begins. You begin in the scriptures and you end in journey. You end on a movement and when you're on that movement, God joins you and God sees you and he is with you every single small step along the way. One of my favorite stories, and I'm running out of time, and I will try to honor your time. Well, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is in Luke 24. Luke 24 is, it's right after Jesus had been crucified. There's two disciples, they're unnamed. Many scholars think it's Cleopas and his wife, and they're walking away from Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified. They're walking out of town. They've been disappointed. All of their hopes were in Christ. Everything that they had was thinking that Jesus was Messiah. He was going to save them. But Jesus was dead. And all they knew, he was going to stay dead. And so they left. It's Sunday afternoon and they're leaving. As they were leaving, someone comes and joins them. Spoiler alert, it was Jesus. They didn't realize this. As he's with them, he starts asking them, why are you so sad? What's going on? In Luke 24, and they look at him. And in my version of the Bible that's in my head, go, I go, they say back to him, did you hit your head on a rock? Where have you been? Jesus, who we thought was the Messiah, and they use this word hoped, whom we hoped was the Messiah, is dead. And our hopes are dead with him. And Jesus begins walking with them along their journey, step by step. And he starts asking them questions. And they say, he says to them, wasn't he supposed to be crucified? Wasn't this supposed to happen? Wasn't this the deal from the beginning? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of our friends went and they said that they saw him or that the tomb was empty. Some people said that they saw him. We're not sure. We're still leaving. And Jesus begins to walk with them. And he starts to open scriptures in front of them. He turns to the prophets and to the law and begins to point out everything that the scriptures said about Jesus. And they still didn't get it. Finally, they get seven miles later they get to the end of their destination. They decide they're going to have dinner together. And as Jesus is breaking the bread, something about him touching the bread and moving the bread, maybe they saw the scars in his hands, real, they realized that was Jesus all along. They were taking a journey. The journey was full of doubt and disappointment. 
but they were on a journey. Jesus met them on that journey. And then he opened up scriptures to them on that journey. And the spirit works inside of them. And then they see that it's Christ. Christ leaves. What's the next step they make? They don't keep going home. They weren't going to go home anymore and stress eat a bunch of pizza and ice cream because they were sad. They were, that's where they were heading. They come back, they turn around, and they go back to Jerusalem. What happened there? They heard from scriptures, and then they responded. When we have revelation from scripture, revelation is one thing. Your response is a complete different thing. When revelation from scripture comes and shows you, I'm bitter, I'm disengaged, I'm cynical, I need to forgive, I need to have that hard conversation, I need to forgive myself, I need to move out, I need to find a different place to live, I need to do this next step. When revelation from scripture happens, the most important step after that is that you follow the revelation and you respond to it. Revelation happens to you, and it's not because you're perfect. These disciples will, were far from perfect. Many of us say, I, I'm too much. I sin too much. I'll never be what I should be. But per being perfect wasn't a requirement to being with Jesus. Being perfect is not a requirement to experiencing revelation. On the contrary, Jesus is constantly meeting people in doubt. Jesus is constantly meeting people who have more questions than they do answers. Jesus is always meeting people who we would say don't belong in the church. And he meets them where they are, and then they respond, and they begin to follow Christ in there. Jesus met these two people on the road, and he showed himself to them on their journey of response. When you saturate yourself in scriptures, you receive revelation, and then the next move is obedience. This is a pattern that's seen through all of scripture. In Genesis 12, Abraham hears from God. God says to Abraham, move away from everything you know here and go to Ur. And Abraham's like, cool, I'll go. I'll take the step. In Exodus 3, God shows up to Moses in a burning bush and says, go see Pharaoh. And after a little bit of dialogue, Moses takes the next step. Joshua crosses the Jordan receives from God a revelation, does what, it sa- does what God says and crosses the Jordan. David was told to go against the Jebusites in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 5, and he does so. Peter was told to go to this guy named Cornelius' house, who was a complete outcast. Peter responds and goes. Paul was told to go to Macedonia, even though he didn't want to go there, and he finally says, I will go. Revelation that happens to you demands a response. What's your next move? We all have something that God has been tugging on our hearts to do. He's revealed himself to you. How are you going to respond? A response is easy. But the first step in order for you to respond is to simply be brave. Oftentimes, God will show you just enough light for the next step. His word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. It's not a halogen. It's not a spotlight. It's a lamp. It's a light. You don't know what's going to be five steps down the road, but you might know what your next step 
is. And so in following God, you're only responsible for the next step. You're not responsible for the sixth one. Small steps, remember? Small steps in what God has called you to do. What's he called you to do? Be brave. Take the next step. Abraham was go to Ur. He didn't tell, God didn't tell him what was going to happen to Ur in Ur. Peter didn't know what was going to happen when he met with Cornelius. For all they knew, they were walking into their death. But God met them there. And they were obedient. And he says, I'll fill you in more details when you get there, but I'm going to need you to take this next step. What's the next step you're go- you're, God is telling you to take? This is the hardest part for me. I'm one of those that like to have everything figured out and calculated and all the facts done before I move. God doesn't work like that. Maybe you're just like me. You want all the details done. You want to know what you're going to be doing. But God's just saying one step and we'll take care of the second step later. But I want to see if you'll take one. Maybe he hasn't shown you the second step yet because you haven't taken the first step yet. So on your journey, be brave. On your journey, go slow. You might say, yeah, I'm in. I'll do anything for God. I'll move to, the, to Timbuktu or I'll move to Tacoma, wherever it is for you. <laughs> you might be saying, I'm totally in because Joshua crossed the Jordan. I'm going to go. I'm going to do the hardest thing. Whoa, go slow. The crossing of the Jordan was after 40 years of wandering the wilderness. Moses was after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, tending sheep before he got his call. Go slow. You don't have to conquer it all in one day. On your journey, go slow. Be brave. Faith is a long, slow journey. Jesus walked with those people on the road to Emmaus for seven miles Go slow, small steps. And the, second, and the last part, the last step to your journey is live your journey and not, not someone else's. Here's what happens when I go to my gym. I go to the gym right up here on the corner, this CrossFit thing. There are people in there that are way strong, way fast. They can pull themselves up on bars that I wish I can do. They can do all sorts of things. And I'm sitting there going, I, I'm dumb. I can't do any of that. And I get jealous and I get discouraged because I can't meet them. I can't do what they do. At that point, I've become so focused on their abilities and I've forgotten mine. In our faith journey, you'll look at people and you go, they have a prayer life that I so desire. They have a relationship with Jesus that I want so bad. They worship without abandon and they don't care who's around them. Even though they're tone deaf, they are singing so loud and I like that about them. And then you go, but I can't, I can't sing that loud. I don't have a prayer life like that. I can't be in scriptures for as long as they do. And then what do you do? You disengage. You become cynical and then you begin to drift. On your journey... You respond to the revelation. You're brave. You take the small steps. And then you live your faith. And then you watch your faith go. Concentrate on what God's doing in you. Not what God's doing in somebody else. Live your journey. This is the story of scripture. Seeking God and responding to who he is. And on your response, you'll meet Jesus in that place. Would you pray with me and then we'll introduce communion. Father, we thank you that you give us tangible ways to know you more. Small steps. 
And Lord, on all of our journeys, may we find you in scripture and may we obey scripture and then begin to journey with you from there. Lord, may you show yourself to us. You promise us in Jeremiah that you can be found if we seek you. Lord, may we seek you. And may we respond to what we find about you. Would you give us courage to take that next small step in our relationship with you? On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the cup and he took the bread. And he took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As long as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And he broke it and he handed it to them. Same night, he took the cup. He said, this is the blood. As long as you drink this cup, when you do so, do it in remembrance of me. And then he passed it around and those disciples responded. When they took the bread and cup, they were aligning themselves with Jesus. Only one person didn't take the bread and cup and it was Judas. The disciples saw everything about Jesus. They had seen God revealed in the person of Christ. And then their next step was taking this and aligning their life to his. Tonight, when you respond in communion, may you be joining Christ's work in you and may you be joining him on his mission in this world. Come when you're ready.